0: the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people freedom has never been free now my doors always open open. to dreamers and friends friends. when I'm attacked I protect and defend
1: And welcome, this is Karen Schoen, you are listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Folks, the Alliance is doing amazing things with our micro schools. If you don't know about them, please contact me and I will be happy to set you up with the right person and you can learn how you can get your child, your children, your grandchildren, anyone's children out of those indoctrination clinics, which are masquerading as public schools. Folks, it is so sad to see. I checked the NAEP, which is also considered the uh, nation's report card. Florida students eighth grade, reading scores, 29% of the kids are proficient in reading, 29%. 23% are proficient in math. This is where our tax dollars are going. I think it's time we should sue the Department of Education for not fulfilling their job of educating our children because they certainly are not doing that. And because this is a show about education, this past week has been an amazing historical week. And when I talk about history, I always like to talk to Bill Federer because he fills in those gaps that were never reported in school. So Bill is going to be our guest today. But before we, I bring on Bill, I want to read you something Because this, to me, set the stage of what we are experiencing today. And I'd like Bill's comment on it. This was written by Woodrow Wilson after he lied and signed the Federal Reserve Act. He said, I am a most unhappy man. I have unwittingly ruined my country. A great industrial nation is controlled by its system of credit. Our system of credit is concentrated. The growth of the nation, therefore, all of our activities are in the hands of a few men. We have come to be one of the worst ruled, one of the most completely controlled And dominated governments in the civilized world. We are no longer a free government by a free opinion, no longer a government by conviction and the vote of the majority, but we have become a government by the opinion and duress of a small group of dominant men nothing to me is more true than that today. It doesn't matter when this was written. This is what we are experiencing. And the Federal Reserve, to me, is at the bottom of all of this. And I don't think people understand what the Federal Reserve is and how it came about. And I'm going to ask Bill if he can explain it to us. But before I bring Bill on, I want to tell everyone, go to Bill's website and make sure that you sign up for the American Minute. You will be blessed to be able to understand what our history is about. And Bill sends out the most amazing emails. Every day you get a piece of history in your email box. Thank you so much for joining me, Bill. It is always wonderful to have you on. So what do you think about Woodrow Wilson? What did he do to America?
0: Yeah, well, the banking system during the revolution is we had fiat currency called the continental and you would have the continental Congress, go to farmers say, we need your supplies. We'll give you this piece of paper, but the federal government didn't have any gold backing it up. So it's called fiat currency. The British would come to farmers and say, we'll pay you in gold for those same supplies. And so you had different farmers, sometimes siding with the British and sometimes siding with America. Well, when we finally won independence, you had Alexander Hamilton and he wanted to enable America to trade with Europe, but they didn't want to do business with us, with our continentals. And so it was Alexander Hamilton that started the first bank in America and uh, he started it in New York, and then he uh, started the uh, the Treasury. Uh, and his statue is in front of the Treasury building there in uh, in d c. And um, And so Alexander Hamilton's bank in New York actually lent the money for the um to pay the salaries of the original congressman. And then you have Aaron Burr start a competitive bank in New York which later became Chase. And then you had um, the Nicholas Biddle became the head of the Bank of the United States. And um, he ended up, it was a private bank with the U.S. government's money deposited in it. And with all that money, he could keep a percentage and lend the rest out. And because there was so much money that he was lending out, he was more or less setting the interest rates and the reserve requirements in the country would follow. And um, you had James Madison uh, end the first charter of the Bank of the United States. And, of course, right after that, you had the uh, War of 1812. And there's a, a good line of reasoning that the War of 1812 was started because James Madison had canceled the charter of this Bank of the United States, who's the uh, had lots of English people who were depositing in it. So it's like, okay, you won your independence, but we're going to control your money. And then it was rechartered, and then it was Andrew Jackson that did not recharter the Second Bank of the United States in the eighteen thirties. There was an assassination attempt on Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson said that the the bank had become a Electioneering machine. What does that it was,
1: sound familiar?
0: It, it was pay it, you know, funding the campaigns for different congressmen and senators. and of course, when they would get elected, they would be uh, making decisions in favor of this bank. And then Nicholas Biddle would have the bank uh, buy newspapers and write editorials, slamming the politicians that didn't go along with them. And um, and so when Andrew Jackson uh, refused to put the federal money in the Second Bank of the United States, Nicholas Biddle had his paper uh, do all kinds of negative um, articles and editorials about Andrew Jackson, accusing him of destroying the Constitution because. Um, you know, there's enough of these politicians that were voting for the bank and, and they said, well, he's, you know, going against all these politicians will, well, you know, the editorials, if you just go back in history, look at him, it makes Andrew Jackson look bad. But then you realize it was, there's one editorial or one cartoon that somebody did of Andrew Jackson with a sword and chopping off the heads of this. Multi serpent monster, like a Medusa. So there's like all these snakes with all these heads with all these politicians on them, but then then behind it all is Nicholas Biddle with his Bank of the United States controlling all of them, and um and so when Andrew Jackson uh first pulled the federal <clears throat> the federal money out, but then second um in you know took away the charter, there was no federal bank in America up until Woodrow Wilson, and um, he pushed it through. There was a panic in 1897. It was a financial panic, and a lot of people went to their banks and said, we want to pull our money out because we don't want the bank to go uh, uh, under. So the banks did this reserve requirement thing where they would keep a percentage of the deposits in the bank for day-to-day transactions but then all the other deposits they would lend out at interest and um, when people became unsure of the stability of the bank they would rush to the bank and say I want to pull my money out well they could pull the the reserve amount out but if they wanted more than that well all the, the more was already lent out and so the banks would have to call in the loans and say you got to hurry up and well the businesses weren't in a position to just have the, and so the businesses would have to go bankrupt and then the businesses couldn't pay back the loans. And so then there wasn't enough money. And, um, and, and so that was the 1897 financial crash that persuaded people to push through the federal reserve. There was the Aldrich bill, which is what the, um, Big industrialists, the Rockefeller, Carnegie, J. Paul, Getty, all those others uh, pu- publicly supported the Aldrich bill. And since everybody was now against these robber barons, uh, that they didn't want the Aldrich bill to go through. So the same people, uh, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies and everybody, they met on Jekyll Island and they said, look, we're going to do an alternative bill called the Federal Reserve Act. And then everybody will think it's the opposite of the Aldrich bill. And, but nobody will know we're behind it. And so they pushed it through. It was called the federal reserve act. Mm-hmm. And it's a, uh, a private corporation with 24 regional banks that has stock and who owns the stock. Well, it's these same, uh, industrialists. And so they, they basically, um, it, it's not a federal It's not a it's a federal government entity. It's a, it's actually a private entity that is somewhat regulated by the federal government, but the, it's the regional banks that have the stock that is owned by these major industrialists so forth. So, um, but, but it was sold to the country as this would prevent another financial collapse. Well, let's see, it was passed around 19, you know, 17, uh, you had financial collapse after the Federal Reserve. The big one was in 1929. And, the, uh, and it, it was people that look at it in history say, well, was the Federal Reserve not, not functioning? Or was it an intentional crash that benefited the people uh, that um, were in a position to, to benefit from it? And this goes back to uh, the Rothschilds. I I know I sort of skipped past the Rothschilds, but if you go back in time, you had, uh, I wrote about this in one of my American Minute posts. The very beginning, you had shekels back in ancient Israel, and a shekel was a unit of weight. And you would have a scale and you'd put gold, jewelry and gold stuff on one side. And then you would put these little weights on the other and that they were shekel weights. And this was, you know, 100 shekels, 200 shekels. And so they would say this, uh, you know, 200 shekels worth of gold. Well, they were, that was what the weight was. And uh, it wasn't until 600 BC that King Croesus of Lydia invented coins that were a weight of the precious metal itself. And so uh, that was the first gold coin. Actually, he mixed gold and silver and it was called Electrum or something. Uh, but as soon as you did, then you had politicians mixing cheap metals in with the gold and the silver and lead. And and so they were more or less inflating the, the, <laughs> the, the, the currency with, with cheaper metal. The then beginning of
1: inflation, isn't it?
0: And then you had clippings. And so the Romans had these coins, but they were silver, and, and people would clip the little edges off. And, you know, you'd get a coin, you'd have an edge clipped off, but you're like, well, you know, let's just do the transaction anyway. Well, all those clippings would be saved up, and people were making. And to counteract that, they would put ridges around the edge of the coin. And so on your quarter today, you see these little ridges all around the edge. Well, that was to show if there had been a clipping and, um, but now, you know, our coins are not made out of precious metals anyway, but then China invented paper currency, uh, Kubla Khan. Uh, So when Marco Polo went over to China in the 1200s, um, he was amazed that you could buy lots of stuff with a piece of paper. And it was Kublai Khan, and the piece of and it was called the Wan Dynasty, and so his piece of paper was called the Wan, and it still is to this day, and um, and so people would use it for transactions, but then Kublai Khan printed too much of it, and people began to not want to take it, and then the emperor ordered that they had to take it, but nobody wanted to, and so Marco Polo when Kublai Khan was getting ready to die, he's like, you know, this this one dynasty is going to collapse as soon as he dies because nobody's going to want to take this. And so supposedly Marco Polo was given, given a gold bar that had uh, sort of a passport with markings of the emperor saying, you know, let Marco Polo have, you know, passage. And so he was able to go all the way back to Venice, Italy. Um, but, uh, and so then you had, and in Europe, people would have their gold and they would keep it in their house. They would have a, a, either a fortified room or a safe house or something that was, a, it was like a little treasury house on their estate built like two stories high and no windows on the first floor and stone. And, and you have to go upstairs to get in. So it would be like a counting house is what they called it the king is in the counting house counting out his money. Um, And so the, the, the uh, but you'd have to sort of guard it. And then you'd have these people coming along like the Medici's and they would have really big counting houses and you could store your money in there. And they would lend a little bit out and increase the amount of money you put in there with, with interest. And of course they would make money on the side themselves and, And so when you did a transaction, instead of going down to the banking house, taking out your gold coins, go buying something from your neighbor, they would take the gold coins right back to that banking house, but put it in a different drawer. The banking house said, you know what, Uh, just write on a piece of paper that you wanted and sign it and say, you want to move some gold out of your drawer and put it into this other guy's drawer. That way you can carry out your transaction and not have to carry gold away from the the counting house and then back to the counting house and risk getting robbed on the way. And then that turned into checks. And um and so then these banking houses realized that you know only so much money is moved around every day and the rest of it right just keep it in a drawer when they can lend it out and so they would lend it out and make lots of money and the Rothschilds were one of these families. And uh, Meyer Amschel Rothschild, he set up a banking house and then he set up his sons in banking houses all across Europe and in Paris and in London. And and they were sort of the first international banking family. Um, And when even, you know, Columbia Encyclopedia uh, would say wars in Europe would be fought or not fought, depending on whether the Rothschilds would lend the money. So you'd have some German king going to the banking house saying, "Hey, can I borrow some money for a war?" And then the the king in the o- opposite country would go to the brother's banking house and say, "I want to borrow some money for the war." And then the two brothers would talk to each other and say, "Well, you know, is this a good financial investment?" They say, "Well, tell you what, we'll make the king pledge his country's assets. So if he if he loses, uh, we get to we get to." confiscate this and if he wins we get it back with interest and so they became known for this sort of international banking scenario um, you had Napoleon and he uh was conquering Europe and he hated these bankers and he hated uh them wanting to lend him money but then own own him after they lent him the money and so Napoleon had some, some really bad things to say about these bankers. But you had the big... Oh, so Napoleon uh, loses a half a million men in Russia, and then he has to abdicate the throne, and then he's banished to the island of Elba in the, uh, the Mediterranean. After a year, he escapes, comes back to Europe, regathers his army, and it's the 100 days of Napoleon... And he builds up to this enormous battle of Waterloo. We're talking uh, hundreds of thousands of people fighting in these battles. And it's um, the story is that uh, the Rothschild um, had somebody observing the uh, battle and saw that Napoleon was losing and the British were winning. And so he rushed back to London with the news and Rothschild began to sell all of his stock in everything. And he was such an important guy. The rumor spread that he had inside information that the British lost and Napoleon won. And if Napoleon won, that means that Napoleon would invade and take over and everything would be worthless. And so everybody starts selling their stock. Well, the Rothschilds began to buy up all this panic selling really cheap. And when the next day the news came that the British had won and Napoleon had lost, well, then the stock market skyrockets and the Rothschilds make like a million pounds sterling in one day. And so this was manipulating this this uh, news for their benefit. And.
1: (laughs) So, Bill, what you're saying is that they actually created the bubble, the beginning of the first bubble, and that's what they have been doing for years and years after. They go after their political enemies by using the banking system.
0: Yeah, and and so then the European bankers lent money to um, uh, Santa Ana and lent money to Mexico, and when Benito Juarez got in, he refused to pay the bankers. And that's when the French sent their army and it landed in Mexico and you had this war and the French took over Mexico for a number of years. We were fighting a civil war, so we were um, not not aware of it. Um, But then uh, the um, Benito uh, Benito Juarez uh, won and had the French Maximilian shot and but it was. You know, over Benito Juarez refusing to make payments, and then you have the Civil War, and these bankers actually go to Lincoln, and they say, "We want to lend you money for the war," and Lincoln could have borrowed money, but then they would have owned America, and so instead, he issues greenbacks, which were fiat currency backed by nothing except the promise that somewhere in the future the the government would pay for it, and so. People began to buy these greenbacks and use these greenbacks. And, and Lincoln raised like, you know, $75 million to help finance the North during the Civil War. After the war, you know, Lincoln shot Andrew Johnson's the president. But then you have Ulysses S. Grant and gold is discovered in the Rocky Mountains. And Ulysses S. Grant, in one of his addresses to Congress, he says, a strong box of precious gold has been discovered in the Rockies and we're forging the key to unlock it. And and this is just in time for us to use to pay off these greenbacks and the civil war debt. And, um, and so, you know, all those greenbacks did get paid off and then our currency was backed by gold and things were going really good. Um, and then, uh, you had, um, other countries, supposedly, were learning how to counterfeit our, our dollar bills, like, you know, Russia and other ones, and uh, and then coming to the banks and presenting these dollars saying, okay, we want our gold. And Nixon was the one that, that said, okay, well, we're going to have all of our gold taken. And and so he said, "We're we're going to no longer redeem your dollars in gold. So if you show up at the bank, I got this they would call it a gold certificate or a silver certificate. Um, we, when we got married, um, somebody gave us $31 bills, but they were $1 bills and it said silver Silver certificate, certificate. which means you could, you could take it down to the bank and say, I want, uh, a you know, this redeemed in silver. And I had it, I wanted to put it somewhere safe. So I put it in my wife's, uh, jewelry box and, um, but we were, you know, a young couple and we didn't have much money. And so she needed money for groceries. And I come home and she goes, I found $30 in my jewelry box and I used it to buy groceries. And I'm like, oh, those mm-hmm. are silver so, so <laughs> certificates. You know, we probably could have got a couple hundred dollars off of that. Um, but, um, but anyway, um, it was Richard Nixon that decided to unhook the, the U.S. dollar from the gold standard.
1: Is that how we became petrodollars, where the oil backs the dollar now or hopefully continues to? But is that where all of this came about?
0: Um, well, that that actually was uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the uh, Saudi, Standard Oil Company discovered oil in Saudi Arabia. So oil was first discovered, it was it was from Wales. Whale blubber, and they boil it down to make this really clear oil that they would use in whale oil lamps. And you probably see them in museums; these glass lamps, and they would have like a wick, and they would burn it. um, But because more and more countries wanted to have whale oil lamps, that you began to have them hunting for whales, and not just Massachusetts people, but now you know Russia and Japan. Everybody's hunting whales for whale oil. And the poor whales are being hunted to almost extinction until they're saved when there's the Drake oil well in Pennsylvania around 1849. And um, and then there's another oil well discovered in Oklahoma. And then you begin to have more oil. So basically, it was the oil industry that saved the whales.
1: Oh, isn't that well, wonderful? So uh, Bill, now, we're going to yeah. have to... Come to a conclusion here and then pick it up after the break. So please tell everyone where they can find you and your wonderful books.
0: Americanminute.com. Americanminute.com. And this um, this talk is uh, you can sign up for a daily email on that website.
1: And folks, the emails that you get are phenomenal, and you will get a piece of history, and you will learn about it just like we're learning about our history of money. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to The Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, and that would be GoFLCA.com. Um, Sign up and get our newsletter as well, and learn how what you can do to help save our children. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back.
0: Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code out loud at cofixrx.com. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep and sleep deep. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep. Go to healthycell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it or your money back.
1: Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers.
0: Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. AmericaOutloud.com. Seven amazing years. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio: The Liberty and Justice for All.
1: Welcome back, everyone. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. And that would be goflca.com or .org and learn about our micro schools and how you can get our kids out of the horrific public indoctrination clinics. Uh, This is a very exciting program, folks. And the most important thing that you will learn is that you are not alone. Your child is not alone. And the good news is the children that have been educated through a homeschool program are 30% ahead of the children that have been in public school. So you will be doing an amazing thing for your child. The best gift that you can give a child is to teach them to read and learn our wonderful American history. And this is a week that we have had several important historical dates uh, to remember, like June 6th. And what was June 6th? Oh, how many people have no idea what D-Day was and why it's important to America. And then this coming week, we're gonna be looking at Flag Day and most people have no idea what the old glory was and why we shouldn't be burning it, why we should be revering it. Bill, I have asked Bill Federer to stay with me for the next segment so that he can explain, Bill, what is D-Day and June 6th? What does that have to do with our American history?
0: Yes, well, you had two forces. One was Imperial Japan, and for decades, they were taking over areas of the Pacific, and they invaded China. In Nanking, China, they had actually a massacre. Um, they took over uh, in Singapore and the Philippines. And, uh, and the, the t- turning point in the war in the Pacific was uh, the Battle of Midway, June 4th, 1942. And that was pretty amazing. The Japanese had four aircraft carriers that were planning on attacking midway. And the Americans had torpedo bombers, which flew really close to the water and would release a torpedo and would hopefully have it go through the water and hit the carriers. But they were not all very successful. Uh, But they take off first and the Japanese carriers have their planes take off, fight these torpedo bombers and all of them get killed except one guy who his plane got shot and he ditched in the water. Um, And you think, Oh gee, they they all wasted their lives. Well, no, because when the Japanese planes got back to their aircraft carriers, they had to refuel and rearm. And this was a lengthy process because they had um, all their ammunition way below deck and they had to have carts and put them on elevators and bring them up. And so, They're more or less, their planes are on the deck, but not being usable. Then you have the dive bombers and they're flying at a very high altitude. They spot the trail of the aircraft carriers in the water because they had moved to an area where we couldn't find them. And they follow the the trail in the water, the wake. And they, um, come upon them and you had the, um, uh, McCluskey was the one, uh, commander and he attacked, uh, and, uh, sunk one of the, uh, the Kaga K-A-G-A. And this commander C Wade McCluskey Jr. And, um, then you had Dick Best, B-E-S-T, and he saw everybody's attacking the Kaga, but nobody is going to go attack the Akagi, which was the second aircraft carrier. And so he, with two other guys on their own, fly a little further to the Akagi, a- and they... The way the dive bomber works is you're high. You you tilt your plane down, and you are directly diving toward the Earth at the the target that you're wanting to hit. And you're diving straight for that aircraft carrier. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then uh, you unhitch the bomb, and then you try the best you can to pull your plane up out of that nosedive, And then the bomb keeps going. And so the two guys that were with Dick Best, their bombs hit right in front of and right behind the uh, Akagi. And Dick Best's bomb went through the deck, down into the ammunition level, and it just set off this huge explosion, which sunk the Akagi. And then you had the Soryu and the Hiru. Um, So Dick Best went back and um re-armed and then came back and attacked the um i think it was the hiryu and uh and then later uh, the soryu was so damaged that the japanese decided to scuttle it which means they and they got all everybody off it that they could and then they sank it themselves because they didn't want america to get it but it was like so badly damaged and it was so far in the middle of the pacific that there's no way they could have towed it back to to japan to be repaired and so four aircraft carriers were sunk at this battle of Midway and Japan had to switch from being on the offensive to being on the defensive. This, this was such an important battle that Chicago named its airport after the battle. It's called the battle of Midway. So it's called Midway airport. There was another guy uh, named, um, Butch O'Hare and he, uh, Took off with his squadron and his plane was malfunctioning, and so he had to turn and go back. Um, they I can't remember if they fixed his plane or he just got it in another plane and he took off. And then the second time he took off, there was a lot of Japanese planes heading right for the aircraft carrier that he took off from the Lexington, and so he's like the only plane, uh, and he just flies right at this. Uh, entire squadron of Japanese planes and he's like shooting them right and left and following them and circling them and hitting them and then he runs out of ammunition and he's like clipping their wings with his wing and I mean just uh, uh, unbelievable uh, courageous Um, and they uh, evidently have a camera mounted in the front of the plane so that when you have it and you're in a fight, it can be turned on so you can, you know, see what's going on afterwards. And so they, they saw all this courageous, um, you know, attack. So single handedly, um, O'Hare took out nine Japanese bombers, which were headed straight for the aircraft carrier, the Lexington. And so that's why Chicago named its other airport after him. What a, uh, O'Hare Airport.
1: What an amazing group of people, so courageous and fighting for the idea and the concept of a free republic, which we have no idea what that is anymore. And the right to work to revere our flag, which now becomes a symbol to burn, because our children are not being taught what this is really all about, and this is a battle of really good versus evil, and nothing has changed year after year after year. We have the same battles going on. We talked about money in the first segment. We have the same group of people, nothing has changed. It's the same group of people manipulating our money, bringing us bubbles, bringing us up and down. And it's really time that we pay attention to what we will lose if we don't fight for our country. And we don't have to pick up a uh, uh, bat. We don't have to go in an aircraft to be able to do that. We don't have to pick up a gun to be able to do that. We just have to pay attention to the people that we put in office. Bill, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, Flag Day this coming week, and that would be on June 14th. So maybe you can give us a little history of the American flag and where did old glory come from?
0: Well, if if possible, I'd like to share it on D-Day. Um, okay. So we we talked about Battle of Midway being the turning point in the war in the Pacific, but it was D Day that was the turning point of the war in Europe, and so you had um, the, the Nazis taking over with their Blitzkrieg, country after country, and uh, you had um, on June sixth of nineteen forty four. So this is two years after the Battle of Midway. You have um, this. Landing on um, uh, the coast of Normandy, uh, over 160,000 over 160, troops from America, Britain, Canada, Free France, Poland, other nations, 50-mile stretch of the Normandy coast. General Dwight Eisenhower is the one who gave the orders. Um, it was bad weather and the tide was out, which means that you'd have to land further out, because of the tide, and so he delayed the attack an entire 24 hours, risky, because the Germans were being led to think we were going to attack in an entirely different spot, and so if they would have found out. So it's the largest seaborne invasion force in world history, probably the largest that will ever be, because with satellites, you can now see what's going on. It had uh, 13,000 support aircraft, 5,000 ships, and uh, 195,000 Navy personnel. And um, they uh, landed paratroopers behind enemy lines, and they even had these planes that were gliders. So the, the plane would pull this glider and then unhook the glider, and then the glider would try to find a spot to crash land Um, You know, unfortunately, some of them didn't land right and everybody on it died. But the other ones, uh, they would land in a field and then get off. And then their job was to destroy bridges so that the uh, Nazis, when they finally realized we attacked, couldn't get supplies there. And and then you had the uh, army rangers uh, climbing up the, the cliffs and they. Uh, had to shoot these ropes up with the metal anchors on the end and they would climb up the ropes and the Nazis would shoot them and they'd fall down. The Nazis would cut the rope and they'd start climbing again. And And this is Utah beach point du Hoc, Omaha gold, Juno sword beach, 9,000 killed or wounded. And, um, and it's called operation overlord. And it lasts uh, two and a half months, over 2 million soldiers arrive on the shore. They're able to push the Nazis out of Paris um, in a month and a half, August 25th, forty four, And then they uh, begin to push the Nazis back until finally uh, in July of 1944. Uh, they um, are getting close to Berlin. And then, uh, or excuse me, um, uh, the, they p- push the Nazis back. And then there's the Battle of the Bulge, in which the Nazis try to do this blitzkrieg to, to push America back out and they can't. And then it was then finally April 45 that, um, uh, Hitler reportedly blew his brains out in Berlin and the war was over. But, um, uh, one of the things I think is worth noting is Franklin Roosevelt's D-Day prayer. And so he gives a prayer, uh, on D-Day in, He, it's broadcast, and the entire nation is listening, and lots of people all around the world. So it's considered probably one of the most listened to prayers. But Franklin Roosevelt said on D-Day, 1944, Help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith to thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Ask the people to devote themselves to a continuance of prayer as we rise each day. And again, each night, let the words of prayer be on our lips. Invoking thy help for our efforts, give us strength. And, O Lord, give us faith, give us faith in thee, and with thy blessings prevail over our unholy forces of the enemy. Um, Let a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Let thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. And uh, that prayer just this year has been added to the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., Thanks to the efforts of Chris Long of the Ohio Christian Alliance, getting his Congressman Bill Johnson and Senator Rob Portman to put forth the bill. It was pushed through 10 years of uh, effort to get it through the U.S. Congress and the funding and the Parks Department and all these agencies that are this huge bureaucracies that the last thing they want is something that acknowledges God. And so he had to wrestle through all of that. Uh, But finally, they put uh, four bronze plaques with Franklin Roosevelt's D-Day prayer that I read an excerpt of in the Circle of Remembrance. And it's about 50 yards away from the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. And to my knowledge, it's the only uh, uh, place that's dedicated to a prayer in all of the mall there in the D.C. area. It's not just a quote mentioning God. It's dedicated to a prayer. And in that prayer, Roosevelt said uh, that they were in a struggle to preserve our republic and our religion and our civilization. And you think religion. Well, what, 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 <laughs> well he passed out Gideon's New Testaments and yeah. wrote the Psalms to all the soldiers.
1: We for, how quickly we forget and how sad that is that these brave men fought so hard so that we would be able to denounce God and burn our flag and teach our kids that our country is horrible. That is unbelievably disgusting to me and very sad. And it's up to us to make sure that our children know that we live in a republic, not a democracy, and that good men fought and gave their lives so that we would be able to have the freedom to do what we choose. And what we choose should not be to the detriment of our fellow Americans and to our wonderful country. Bill, we have only a few minutes left, and I would like to talk about the flag for a few minutes. So if you can give us your wisdom on the flag and how we should be teaching our children to revere it and not burn it.
0: Yeah. So you had the, the first flag was actually the, the pine tree flag. So the British empire had a Navy that had ships with large, large masts, these, you know, pine trees that they turn into these poles that they would put in your ship that they'd hang sails on. And in Maine, which back then was Northern Massachusetts, um, they would walk onto people's farms and identify all the really nice tall pine trees and put the king's mark on them. And you could no no longer chop that tree. It didn't belong to you. And the farmers didn't like that. And so they uh, basically had a battle. And so it was uh, considered the first battle of rebellion against the king was this pine tree battle that took place in the early 1700s. And so when the revolution starts, We didn't have a navy, and you had George Washington pay for six ships. It's called Washington's Cruisers, and um, they um, uh, have the pine tree flag. And uh, above it, it says, Appeal to Heaven. And the uh, idea is that you appeal to the court, but if you don't get justice, you appeal to the Supreme Court. If you still don't get justice, well, you you go above the government's head, you appeal to God. And so our founders are saying, look, we're not getting justice from the King. We're going to go above the King's head. We're going to appeal to God. And so these, the pine tree flag is this white background, a pine tree on a top appeal to God. So that's like the first flag. And then you had, uh, Betsy Ross sewed the flag for the uh, Pennsylvania Navy right so we didn't have a national Navy yet um you had Massachusetts had uh, a large the fishing industry that these fishermen turned their boats into the the more or less the Massachusetts Navy which was then co-opted to become the u.S Navy um, but Betsy Ross sews this flag and then you have um George and um, other different leaders come to uh, Betsy Ross. Uh, Her uncle was George Ross, who was a signer of the declaration. And, uh, and she was in a, uh, a seamstress and her, her husband, John Ross was an upholsterer. And, uh, but she's, he gets killed when the munitions depot he was guarding blew up, but Betsy Ross uh, sewed this flag. And so it uh, had the thirteen uh, stripes, and then the the, the stars, and um, but uh, then you it was Eisenhower that actually made the designation of Flag Day. Dwight Eisenhower, and um, he uh, you know gave credit to God in his proclamation of Flag Day. So just uh, an important time in our in our country's history where we realized that um and and then you had the eisenhower added under god to the pledge of allegiance so you had a baptist minister uh, who actually wrote the the pledge of allegiance but originally it didn't have the under god part but then it was uh dwight eisenhower that added under god to the, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. and um, But that's uh, June 14th that that happened. So June 14th in 1777 is when the Continental Congress selected what is most considered Betsy Ross's flag. And then uh, you had uh, Woodrow Wilson designating June 14th as Flag Day, but then it was... Um, uh, Eisenhower that made the, um, the addition of under God to the flag. So. uh,
1: And now our children can't even say the pledge in school because why? Question mark. Why would you think that's, they, that happens? Well, there's two reasons that I can find. One is because the pledge calls America a Republic and the evil, keeps on calling America a democracy. They're trying to turn America into a democracy, which is nothing more than mob rule. Um, And then the other, of course, is that we are thanking God and can't have God in, in school, can't have God anyplace. Well, that seems to be turning around, and it's because of the wonderful writings of people like Bill, that bring our history forward so that we know what's going on. We talked about money in the first segment and money, I believe, is the root of all good and the root of all evil. Money doesn't care who it works for. So one of the things that we have to do and make sure that we're doing is checking the people that we want to do business with, checking the establishments that we want to go to, and make sure that they line up with our values, with your values. Stop giving money to people that hate you. Stop giving money to... retail establishments or any establishments that are trying to push an agenda that is meaningless harmful and to the detriment of America Bill please tell everyone where they can find you and I want to thank you so much this is always a wonderful history lesson and again will you come back and give us another one
0: sure I'd be happy to And uh, so AmericanMinute.com is my website But I wanted to read this quote from Eisenhower on Flag Day, June 14th, 1954. He said, from this day forward, millions of our school children will daily proclaim in every city, town, village, rural schoolhouse, the dedication of our nation and our people to the almighty. To anyone who truly loves America, nothing could be more inspiring than the rededication of our youth on each school morning to our country's true meaning. Uh, He says, in this way, we are reaffirming the uh, uh, our nation's faith, and so just a, a very important quote: "We're reaffirming our transcendence of religious faith in America's heritage, and constantly strengthening those spiritual weapons, which will forever be our country's most powerful re- resource in peace and war." So, um,
1: thank you, President Eisenhower, and I was very excited to find out that in the school programs where the children are being homeschooled bill many of the parents say the first thing that i do with my children is to make sure that they say the prayer the pledge and that we have an opening prayer for before we begin our studies so the homeschoolers are following what eisenhower requested or actually uh Said that should be in the schools rather than what we see right now going on in our schools. So there is hope. There is always hope. Americans are resilient. We're full of hope and we know what to do. Get our kids out of those schools, stop supporting people that hate us with our money, and make sure that you vet your candidates. That is the most important thing to make sure that the person that is going to represent you. In A representative republic is going to say what you want them to say. If they don't hear from you, they can never know. And that then becomes our greatest challenge. How do we get our representatives to follow us when we don't talk to them? So we have to talk to them. We may not want to. And if you don't want to, that's okay too. You can call them in the middle of the night, leave a message on their answering machine, and they'll get the same message and you don't have to talk to anybody. The most important thing that we have learned is that we must get involved. We cannot sit back any longer and expect others to help us. There isn't going to be any help. And we have to pick up the mantle and we have to carry it ourselves Folks, you have been listening to Karen Schoen and Bill Federer. This is the prism of America's education, and we are brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, goflca.org. You can visit my Substack, which is karenschoen.substack.com. And, look at my articles. You can go to Karen B. Shone. I had to change it to Karen B. Shone, not Karen Schoen. Uh, there was too much confusion, and somebody else with the name Karen Shone bought my URL, so I changed it to Karen B. Shone. You can find my writing and my podcast at that time. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you again next week.
0: America. Yes, America.